Hello, and welcome to the Her Head and Films podcast. In this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about cinema, usually world cinema, art house cinema. If you're new to the podcast and you don't know who I am, my name's Caitlin. I am a writer. I consider myself a dreamer. I love literature, art, poetry, and since around 2011, I've developed a really intense passion for cinema and art house cinema in particular and I just have grown to love watching films and um, this podcast was created as a way for me to express my emotions because for me films are very personal and I like to weave in my own personal experiences and feelings into the way that I talk about films. So to that end, this podcast celebrates the personal, the subjective, the emotional. doesn't mean that I um, ignore larger issues. I consider myself a feminist, so I talk about race, gender, and class often. But most of the films that I talk about are rooted in my own personal reaction to them and why I love them. Um, If you are new to the podcast, you don't know what the title means comes from an email that I sent a friend a few years ago when I was really obsessed with films. I was watching a lot at the time and I said in that email, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. It was just a throwaway line. I just wrote it in the moment, but I thought it was the perfect way to encapsulate my feelings and my pure adoration for cinema and how much I enjoy it. And so that's where her head in films comes from. This podcast does have a Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. Patreon's a website where people who listen to podcasts, watch people's videos, whoever the the content creator is, the fans can um, financially support whatever they're creating. So I do have to pay for storage for the podcast and things like that. So if you'd like to be to be a patron, I have all kinds of rewards and extras. I have a mini podcast that you get access to. It's about 10 to 20 minutes long. Um, every week I give you a streaming guide of things that have been added to Amazon and Hulu and Netflix. I share things that I'm reading. So I do like sort of a, a weekly roundup of, of uh, articles and essays about cinema Uh, You can get a shout out on the podcast, you can recommend a film to me and I'll review it, you can vote on content, so the Patreon is just chock full of rewards and extras for those of you who might be interested in it. Um, At one level, I do uh, give a shout out to certain patrons, so I just want to take one moment to do my shout outs. Um, Thank you to Olivia, Carolyn. Feminist Overlord, Michelle, Lindsay, and Jesse. Thank you so much for being patrons of the podcast. I'm deeply appreciative. This podcast is really important in my life. It's something that I feel unbridled joy in creating and in sharing with all of you who want to listen to me and want to hear what I have to say. It's hard to believe, but at this point I've done around 30 episodes. Um, So that's amazing, you know, and I'm going to keep creating episodes for all of you. If you're a new listener, I hope you'll uh, be a recurring listener. If you're a loyal listener, thank you so much. Um, 
this podcast is really important to me. I'm I'm not gonna um I'm not gonna mince words about it. This is a major passion of mine. Lately I've just been obsessively watching films. It's like I can't stop. <laughs> it's like a almost like a disease at times, this obsession that I get with films and this podcast is a way for me to explore the films that I watch, to work through what I think of them, what I feel about them. I mean, I probably watch five to ten films a week. I mean, sometimes I'll watch one a night, so I I get obsessive, I will be honest. And um and also just to let you know I am on Facebook. So it's her it's Facebook.com slash herhead and films or you can search and I like to share what I'm watching on Facebook. I love to hear comments. I love to engage with you fellow cinephiles. I'd love for it to create like a little space for us to talk about film. So just know that the conversation can continue on Facebook if you would like it to. So today I'm going to talk about two films that I am absolutely crazy for. And I've been, just today, um, I was thinking about how I love when I, when you watch a film and you just become consumed by it. And it's all you can think about for days. And I find that sometimes I watch films for that reason. I watch them because I want to be consumed. Because sometimes the past is too painful because the present is too painful. Um, I've, if some of you have listened before, I've been through a lot of things in my life. I've been through a lot of loss. Um, I've been through a lot of grief. Um, I've been through trauma. And films are life-saving for me. I'm not gonna... I, I can't put it any other way. And um, when I'm... Often when I'm feeling terrible or when I'm struggling or sometimes when I'm really depressed because I deal with depression and anxiety, um, I will watch films and it sort of, it gets me into someone else's life and it, and it tells us, I like hearing stories. I like getting lost in other people's stories. I like engaging with my imagination and thinking about what life is like for someone else. And it's always been this way for me. It's why I read books. It's why I'm I'm very curious about the world and I just love learning and I love knowledge and for me films are like an extension of that of 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 knowledge, of learning, of and sometimes they're just pure pleasure and then sometimes they can be very painful to watch and but films are life-saving to me and that's why this podcast is the way it is. It's why it has to be personal. It's why it has to be raw. Is because I can't talk about a film in any other way. I don't want to. I don't want to. That's just the truth. I want to talk about these films. I want you to know what they make me feel and why they matter to me and why I think they're important. And sometimes I'm going to make mistakes. And sometimes I'm not going to be perfect. And sometimes I'm going to overlook certain issues that I should have paid attention to, but I'm going to keep doing my best and I'm going to keep sharing my passion with you and bringing you films that I think you should see and that I think will change your life or affect your life. And the two films that I'm going to talk about today, I really feel like they are important films and they're well-made films and they're certainly worth your time. So what these two films have in common is 
a preoccupation, a centralization of health of the body, of ill health and disability, and of life and death. And I watched them several weeks apart, but I got to thinking about doing this episode, and I thought, I think these two would pair well in this episode. The first film I'm going to talk about is Heal the Living, which is a 2016 film by Cattell Quilevere. Quilevere. I do apologize if, if I butcher some of these names. I've done my best to try and figure out the pronunciations. The second film is called Scarred Hearts, and it's also a 2016 film by Radu uh, Jude, or Jude. And so both of these films have things that connect them. So the first film I really want to talk about is Heal the Living. And the French title is Reparer Les Vivants. It is based on a novel or a book. Yeah, it's a novel by Mélisse de Carangal with the same title, Reparer Les Vivants. And um, came out in 2016. This is a film that I'm still thinking about. I watched it last night and then I woke up today thinking about it. I had not planned to do an episode about it. Um, so this episode comes out organically just through my obsession with this film and how I'm still thinking about it. And that's why I said that at the beginning that I like films that really stay with you, that linger in your consciousness, that you find yourself coming back to, and that just sort of leave this residue on your life. And I think Kill the Living does that, honestly. I don't think enough people have been talking about this film. So I'm talking about it. And so what is this film about? It's about two people, really. It's about a young boy named Simon and a woman named Claire. Simon is a teenager. He likes to surf. The film begins with him going surfing with friends. He ends up on the way back after uh, going surfing. He ends up in a car accident and he's basically brain dead. So his brain is dead, but all the other parts of his body and his organs are in excellent shape. And so he becomes a candidate for organ donation. Claire is a middle-aged woman, I would say. She's probably in her 40s. And she has two, two sons who are probably in their 20s. And she has a heart condition. And it's really degenerative. It's just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. And so she becomes a candidate to receive Simon's heart. And so this is a film about organ donation, obviously. Um... And it's also about sort of the unseen connections between people, the way two strangers can suddenly become connected to one another. Um, it's a film about grief and loss because of Simon's parents having to let him go. It's about illness because we see Claire with her heart, her heart disease, her heart condition, and the ways in which it affects her life. And um, so we have so much in this film. We really have an, a look at life and death. 
and the interconnection between people. And what stays with me about this film is so many things and so ma and the imagery and the cinematography of this film is quite stunning. Alexander Desplo did the score, the soundtrack, and there's this beautiful piano music interwoven throughout the film. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like the soundtrack has been released or is going to be released, which is really unfortunate because this is the music is just gorgeous to me. And it really elevates the film in many ways. Not that it needs to be elevated, but I think sometimes film music can take a film to a completely different level. Um, it can just, it can infuse a film with this whole other emotional dimension, I think. And I really wish that they would release the soundtrack. I'm a really big fan of Alexandre Desplat. Um, and I often listen to film soundtracks and film scores um, by him, by Rachel Portman, by Max Richter, you know, all kinds of people. Um, I find film soundtracks to be really, um, I find them to be very comforting, very beautiful music. It's like listening to classical music. I like to listen to them when I'm reading. But I also like film soundtracks as a way to keep a film alive in you. That when you listen to the film soundtrack, and I'll say, for instance, Alexander Desplat's soundtrack or score for Jonathan Glazer's film Birth, starring Nicole Kidman, I listen to that soundtrack constantly because it just it allows me to enter the film, to almost relive the film, to relive the emotions of the film. And so in that way, soundtracks, I think, can keep a film just constantly present and alive in your life. And I really want to talk about Jonathan Glazer's birth, and his film called Birth. That is a really important film to me, a very personal film, a very, it's just, it's one of those films I struggle to put into words. But, um, so the music in this film is gorgeous. And this is, I think this marks the emergence of a very important director in Cattell Quillevere and she is um, a woman and she is an absolutely amazing director. I myself, I put a lot of emphasis on watching films by women. It's a really important thing to me. I do realize that if you look through the episodes of the podcast, there's not as many women directors. Um, I watch women directors all the time. They are very important to me, whether it's Agnes Varda or Chantal Ackerman or, um, you know, just Andrea Arnold, Joanna Hogg. So I am always engaging with women's films. I just haven't been reviewing enough. I've sort of been focusing on films that I have a really deep personal connection with. And these podcasts are just organic. They're not always planned. They, they come out of different personal situations. And so, but I definitely am going to start reviewing more women directors because those films are very important to me and um, they're very central to my life and, and just essential. So I think, I think you're going to be hearing more about Quillevere and I think she will continue to make some really great films, but Hill the Living is just tremendous. And what stays with me about this film, when 
Simon goes surfing. He gets up in the morning and he's he's with his girlfriend, but he goes off with his friends to go surfing in the ocean. And the uh, the scenes in the ocean are so powerful and so gorgeous to look at. I'm someone who's I feel very intimately connected with water. When I was a child, I always loved swimming and I always loved water. And I remember um, whenever I got the chance to go to a pool, which wasn't often, um, we didn't have a pool and, and uh, we didn't have a lot of money when I was growing up. So I didn't, for a little while, a family friend worked at a hotel and we were able to use the pool a few times or sometimes when we, uh, you know, scrounge up some money to maybe have a short little vacation, we'd go to a local hotel and stay for maybe like two days and um, we'd get to use the pool that way. And what I remember so clearly is that I used to buy goggles and I would put them on and I would go and I would swim in the pool and I would go to the very bottom of the pool as far down as I could go and I would look up through the water and I would just you know float there and I would watch the sun streaming through the water and that was like paradise to me that felt so holy to me and transcendent and I just wished that I could breathe underwater I wish that I could stay at the bottom of that pool forever and just stare at the sunlight streaming through it and when I was watching these surfing scenes or these ocean scenes in Heal the Living, I was reminded of that, of my own very deep connection to water and sort of the healing properties of water. And um, as some of you know, my father died in 2006 when I was 16 years old. And it was a very devastating experience. And... It's something that I still struggle with, and a lot of what my life is now is a direct result of my father's death. The depression that I deal with, the anxiety, the just the overall emptiness that I feel on a pretty constant basis. His death in many ways was my own death, and it was my own... It, it just something in me broke and it has never been repaired it's interesting this is called reparer les, les vivants um, but I was never repaired or restored after his death but the only times that I came close to feeling anything like healing because I don't believe in closure and I don't believe in healing and I feel that there are some wounds that are so enormous that they can never be closed and they can never be stitched back together. The skin just cannot, um, it, it cannot be closed. You know, it's this, it's forever this open wound inside of you. But the only times that I felt any kind of sense of healing was first of all in a movie theater. I was, I did go to the movies a little bit after my father's death, my mom and I. We would go and we would watch films. Sometimes we'd go and watch silly things, you know, like comedies. And then other times I got to go see some 
some uh, international world cinema. And when I look back on my life, some of my best memories are just sitting in a darkened theater and watching films. I took a film appreciation class when I was in high school. I was born in 1989. I took this class about in 2004, 2005. So I was a teenager. I was 14 or 15 years old. And the class took place in the auditorium of the school. And so we would sit in the theater and it would be dark and we would watch these films. And so sitting in a darkened theater has always been a real comfort to me. And when I think think about like happiness that's what I think about but the second thing that made me feel close to any kind of healing was water and so sometimes I got to go to a pool after my father died um, and and I would go to the bottom of the pool and I would look through the water and I would float in the water. I would just float. I loved when I had the pool to myself and nobody was there. And I would just float and look up at the clouds and feel the sun on my face and just feel the weightlessness of my body. And it was the closest thing to healing that I've ever felt in my life. And um, it's beautiful. And I think in these scenes, the water scenes of Heal the Living... Um, there's there is this beauty that she captures about the ocean and there's these amazing scenes where the I think the camera is like looking up through the water and the foam and the bubbles they bloom they bloom like flowers it looks like these white flowers in the water almost and um she really captures sort of the transcendence of water and I've I've actually never been in the ocean I've never I've only been to a beach maybe a couple of times in my life um so I've, I've only ever been in a pool but I would imagine that being in the ocean is a very unique experience as well and in the scenes where he's surfing it was so interesting because the water really looked like glass it didn't even look like water it looked um, transparent like glass and um I just thought that was so beautiful. There there was a tranquility about those scenes, I thought. And there's this amazing scene when they're driving back from surfing. And you think he's going to die surfing. You think he's going to drown. But he doesn't. And there's this amazing scene when they're driving back. And the road, she shows the road. And then the road turns into water. And it's just this gorgeous, amazing special effect that happens. And if you get to see the film, I mean, it's just stunning to, to see that. So he is brain dead. He gets in this bad car accident. He didn't have a seatbelt on. And so his parents are notified, obviously. And so this is this is a film about grief. This is parents trying or having to confront the death of their child and the pain of that and how life is never the same after the loss of someone I mean we all know that um, but I think it can be hard sometimes to convey grief through a film and um, I mean this film doesn't linger a ton on the grief aspect of it. Um, 
but it's there. And death is certainly part of this narrative. But this film is very interesting because it's not just about death. It's not just about the loss of someone. It's about how death, how one person's death can really give a new life to another person. So there's this very delicate dance in this film between life and death. Between Simon, who's connected to these machines, and Claire, who is in desperate need of the heart that is inside his body. And um, with Claire's story, um, we see her struggle with her heart condition. She goes to a, to a piano concert and there's stairs and she's not able to go up the stairs and she has to pay someone to carry her up the stairs. And um, so this is a film really for at least the second part about illness and about the vulnerability of our bodies and how, well, even Simon's story is about the vulnerability of our bodies and how um how indefensible the body is that we don't have defenses really that when you're in a car that gets hit or you're stricken by a disease within your body when one of your organs starts to go wrong like your heart that we really have no protection and how the how this line between health and illness between life and death is profoundly thin that it can change in a second whether you're in a car accident or you're diagnosed with an illness and um the body is difficult and i myself struggle with disability and i struggle with health issues and i struggle with chronic health issues i don't want to go into detail about it but this was a theme of the film that really resonated with me, and it's part of Scarred Hearts, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit. And so the vulnerability of the body is certainly a part of this film as well, and and how we really have no protection against these forces that are much larger than us and are beyond our power. I mean, especially here in the United States, we have this obsession with health with jogging and doing marathons and going to the gym and eating vegan and eating organic and it's really become a way for people to assert their sort of superiority i mean that's not why everybody does it i'm not generalizing i'm not stereotyping but there is this sense of people with money who do these things who have the money to do these things um, of looking down on like working class or poor people who maybe eat Kraft macaroni and cheese and that's the stuff that I grew up on you know I live in the south and I eat like you know southern food and stuff and so the way that you eat and whether you eat healthy or you don't eat healthy or whether you exercise or you don't exercise what size your body is right has become an indication of your moral character. That's what I have a problem with. We're all, you know, you're free to do whatever you want in your life. But I have a problem when you use that to judge other people that don't do that or don't eat the way you do or don't exercise in the ways that you do or don't have healthy bodies the way you do 
or may have a disabled body um, and how not only does illness really affect you physically it affects you emotionally and it affects your your place within society of course this is not in the film but I'm just going on a tangent that the way we treat disabled people or, or people with ill health is often very cruel and very exclusionary and I think a lot of the people who do those things who run and eat you know eat vegetarian and stuff they have this idea that they're doing everything right so they're not gonna get sick they're not gonna um, nothing bad's gonna happen to them and they start to see illness as a personal failing as if you're ill or, or your health is bad then you brought it on it's your fault just like we blame poor people for being poor there's this personal responsibility rhetoric that's really dangerous because we don't control our health we just don't there are all kinds of factors involved that we have no control over whether it's genetics or the environment we live in our access to health care um, our social class that also affects our health our exposure to stress and trauma and natural disasters there's so much involved in what it means to be a healthy person and you can do everything right and still get cancer and still get a terrible disease and still get a heart condition and um, so I'm, I'm interested in films that look at illness and look at disability and look at the way the body can turn against us and really betray us in many ways and and the pain of that you know another really important aspect of this film is obviously the organ transplant and the organ donation and it goes into intricate detail of these doctors and what it takes for them to do these heart transplants and it shows procedures it shows the heart procedure of taking the heart out of Simon transporting that heart to Claire at another hospital and they have to fly it and they have to put it on ice but the scenes of the heart procedure itself were just breathtaking and there's nothing quite like seeing the inside of the human body I mean obviously this was special effects it wasn't like a real you know human beings heart being taken out I mean I'm not sure what it was but it certainly looked very authentic and real and you realize how fragile the human body is that here is this heart and you see the chest open and you see the heart beating and you realize that this is the beginning and the end of life that once you know you can live on if your brain dead to some extent I mean you're you're gonna be hooked up to machines that keep your heart going but once the heart stops everything stops and to see this organ in there beating and just the power of that imagery because we don't see the insides of our bodies I mean that's what's so scary and frightening about being alive and being human I think is that we're in these bodies that we don't understand and we're in these bodies that we can't see and that anything in our body can go wrong and we don't have any control over it I mean we are housed in these bodies but we 
We have no more control over it than we have control over the weather for the most part. And I have a I have a problem with that. Like I really struggle with embodiment and with being a body. Like I don't know how to describe it. Um like I'm an atheist. You know, I don't believe in a soul. I don't believe in anything that separates out of us when we die. It's, we begin and we end with our bodies and it's just terrifying to me as someone who you know deals with health issues and disability and stuff it's like I have no control over this this is scary this is frightening I mean to me it is to me it's very scary and to see the inside of the body to see an organ and you feel so disconnected from it like how is that me you know how is that me because the skin and the bone cover it all up and you don't get to see inside of yourself. And it's so strange when I watch movies. I don't like to watch movies about hospitals or, or things like that. It makes me very uncomfortable. And But I remember when my father died, what was odd about it and so unreal and surreal, I guess you could say. But more unreal than anything was... It was... <sighs> to see him there but he's not there that his body is there but the body is over and the body has shut down and that was what was scary and still scary about it to me was that this was my father but this wasn't my father he was no longer with me anymore so what is he now it made me think of you know, I, I always think of that Tori Amos song, Blood Roses, and that lyric, Sometimes You're Nothing But Meat. And when you see someone you love dead, they are meat. It's like you realize that whatever was animating, this person is gone. And the body is there, but they are not. And... I've never understood it or accepted it. And so that's something that Simon's parents are obviously going to have to come to grips with. And they struggle with the fact that he's brain dead, but he's still alive to some extent, but he will never be alive the way he was. And it's hard for them, I think, to let go of his body, to let go of him. And it's like, how do you do that? You know, that is the struggle. How do you do that? And, um, it's just, I, I, I feel like I'm not putting it into words properly, but it changed me forever and it destroyed me to, to see my father, but to know he wasn't there and to not know where he was. I mean, so where is that person? You know what I mean? Like, I guess it's all in the brain, right? Who we are and our identity and our memories. And you think about everything that's gone with that person. It's just gone. It, it's no longer alive. And it's like they cease to be a person. It's like it's just a body. It's nothing more. It's They are gone. And I've never come to terms with it. I don't think I ever will. But I think this film brings home that idea of we are bodies and yet we're more than our bodies you know we 
we have these personalities, we have this feeling of a soul or this feeling of an essence that is beyond the body. And that's difficult, I think, to understand or to cope with. And um, But at the end of the day, we are this heart, we are this organ that is that either beats or doesn't beat. And when it stops, everything stops. And, um, I mean, if, if you didn't believe in organ donation, this, I'm not going to say this film is propaganda or anything for organ donation. Not that I don't even think that exists really. I mean, organ donation, I would think is a great public good. Um, but I think this film maybe will give people pause to say, wow, you know, organ donation is, look at how powerful this is that, We've taken this heart from this young boy and then we've put it into this woman and she gets another life. She gets to live again. And how powerful the interconnection between two people can be who don't even know each other. You know, she'll never know Simon or who he was and it's anonymous. So they'll never know who got Simon's heart. And yet she's walking around with a piece of this young boy inside of her and just the power of that it was just very overwhelming to me when I was watching it like how two people can be bound to one another and not even know it and um the interconnection of of those two lives it's just I mean wow you know it's I don't even know how to put it into words but it was very powerful to watch that so I think this film is just a must-see. I was really amazed by it when I was watching. So certainly if you get the chance to see it, I, I would definitely recommend that you do that. So the second film I want to talk about is also about disability and the body and illness. I'm not going to go maybe as much into it as I did for Heal the Living, but um. I was really impressed by this film. It was one that I had really been wanting to see, and so I'm glad that I got to see it. And so it's called Scarred Hearts, and it's an adaptation of a book. Uh, the book is written by a Romanian writer um, named Max Blecker. And in 1928, when he was very young, he got diagnosed with Pott's disease. And this is a type of tuberculosis that affects your spine. Um, in the 10 years, the last 10 years of his life, he went to a lot of sanitariums across Europe. Um, but he was also a well-regarded writer and a well-respected writer. Um, he did die in 1938 when he was 28 years old. So he died very young. I mean, he wasn't even 30, but he wrote a novel called Scarred Hearts. And that's, um, and that's where the film comes from. But Blecker, as I say, was a fame. It wasn't a famous writer necessarily, but he was connected to famous people like Andre Breton, Andre Gide. He he wrote to them and corresponded to him to them in his lifetime. Um, New Directions has one of his books out. Um, that's called Adventures in Immediate Irreality. And I read that after watching the film. I'd really love to read the book, Scarred Hearts. Um, he's a very sort of surrealist writer. 
but he is concerned with reality and how people experience reality and that is a big part of his writing I would say so scarred hearts the book is based on patients in a sanitarium in France in the 1930s and um, I'm not sure in the film if the sanitarium is in France or if it's in Romania I'm just gonna be honest I'm not quite sure when I was reading reviews I read different things and so there's not a ton of information about this film yet on the internet so I'm just gonna do my best with it um, but the film follows the lives of different people in a sanitarium and in the 1930s it's pre pre World War two so it's probably 1938 or maybe the mid 30s possibly but just remember that Blecker did die in 1938 and so it's by Radu Jude or Jude um, I was looking online for the pronunciation and one said Jude, one said Jude, so um, I, I'm not quite sure. So the film focuses mainly on a Blecker-like character. Oh, and I see. I'm looking at my notes. The film is set in 1937. Okay, perfect. And so the main character is, is like Blecker. His name's, but his name is Emmanuel, but he's very much like Blecker in that he has Pott's disease and he goes into a sanitarium just like Blecker did. Um, and I can't stress to you enough, just like Kill the Living, the visual aspect of this film, the cinematography is just, it's stunning. I mean, to me, it looked like these vintage photographs that have come to life. It's, it's in color, and the colors are so rich and deep and just lush. And um, I was just stunned by the beauty of the film. And the sanitarium itself is set on the seaside. So the seaside location is quite stunning. And... Um, and it's very interesting to look at this film, not just in terms of illness and disability and to see what Emmanuel goes through, which I'm going to go into in a minute. But this is 1937. In two years, um, the Second World War will start. It started in September 1939, if I'm correct. And so we have this on the horizon. And obviously, Blecker didn't live to see the Second World War and as a Jewish writer he probably would have been sent to his death I would think in Romania and um, but the film itself makes allusions to the tensions that are in Romania and in Europe at the time um, in one scene Emmanuel talks about how I guess maybe neighbors or these people shouted at him that Jews should die uh, when when the patients of the sanitarium are at a party because there's several parties in this film um, it's amazing how the patients of the hospital or the sanitarium they really find ways to entertain themselves and to try and live as fully as they can even though they are experiencing profound pain and disability and illness and um, 
So they're all gathered together, and, and one of them does this impersonation of Hitler. It sort of reminded me of um, Charlie Chaplin in The Great Dictator, when he does, I mean, he's making fun of Hitler, obviously. It's a parody. And he has this amazing scene where he's doing this speech, and I don't even think it's in real German. It's just this ridiculous sort of caricature of Hitler's speeches. And I remember the first time I saw it, I just laughed so hard watching Charlie Chaplin do that. I love Charlie Chaplin. I'm such a huge fan of his. So one of the patients does this impersonation of Hitler. And it's very similar. And it's very funny and everybody's laughing. And of course, none of them know. I mean, I would think maybe at the time they saw Hitler as this sort of laughable buffoon. This sort of, well, who is he? You know? And, um... They have no idea that in two years this man is going to unleash such destruction and such horror in Europe. So that's always, for me as I'm watching the film, is always sort of for sort of clouding the film is this idea that World War II is not far away. But this film is very much about the body, about the disintegration of the body. Because Emmanuel has Potts disease, which, as I said, is a tuberculosis that affects the spine, he's basically not able to walk. He is bedridden. He, his whole body is encased in this white cast, and so he's always in bed. He is always horizontal. His entire life is horizontal, and from the perspective of his bed. And to that end, the way that Radu shoots the film is very um, true to that experience and this is a very unique film I thought in the way that it was shot you don't have any close-ups of the characters you don't have any shot reverse shots um, we are always at a distance from Emmanuel and always at a distance from the patients in the sanit sanitarium um, so we're very much seeing Emmanuel within his environment and we're never seeing his face really in a close-up. We're never getting a sense of his sort of inner life or his emotions or anything like that. Um, but I thought this was a powerful device in the film. I think maybe it could turn some people off the distance from the characters, especially from Emmanuel, who is our main character and that we follow throughout the film. It can feel like this this distancing technique. But for me, I thought it was really important for the film to always show Emmanuel's predicament and condition. You know, if you go close up on Emmanuel, then you don't see his body. You see his face, but you don't see his body, you know, splayed on the bed. Or he is always laying down. He cannot do anything for himself. He cannot walk. He cannot feed himself. He cannot do anything. He is just constantly in this cast. He is always in pain. He himself is separate from the world and distanced from the world. And so showing him from a distance, I thought, sort of conveyed that, that this is a person whose world has completely shrunk down to his being in a cast and laying on this bed or this gurney, being prodded and having to undergo operations by doctors and he's almost treated like this specimen under a microscope and he he has this pus that develops in his stomach and they have to get the pus out 
he is completely reduced to his body to the pain of his body to the disintegration of his body the disintegration of his spine and it really made me think about Frida Kahlo a bit because if you see pictures of Frida she had a lot of pain that she went through throughout her life and with her her back in particular um, I think it was connected to that trolley accident that she had very early in her life and so you'll often sometimes see pictures of her in a body cast and she even did some paintings or at least one painting of her body of her in her body cast and um, there's like tears tears going down her face and she started to paint really because she was bedridden and she she needed I guess a way to pass the time and she needed something to put her energy and focus into and so you'll see pictures of her sometimes just laying in bed with her body cast on and painting you know the she had she had it configured in some way where she could lay in bed and paint and so I wonder if Blecker in some way sort of took up writing once he became ill and once he was bedridden and his health started to deteriorate I'm not sure if that was the impetus for his writing or he was already writing by the time he became ill so Emmanuel is like Blecker you know he's in this cast he cannot move and the shots themselves the way that Radu does the shots they are static they are unmoving there is very little movement in this film especially with the camera shots there is this sense of stasis and of um, of static you know of, of nothing moving and that is Emmanuel's life you know he is stuck in this bed he cannot have a normal life and so the film I think can seem a bit slow or it can seem a bit you know unmoving in that way but I think those choices by the director were very were for a reason was to try to convey that sense of illness and disability of what it's like to really be not only is he trapped in a cast he's trapped in his body he is completely at the mercy of his body and that's very difficult that's very difficult to to deal with you know but of course even though Emmanuel and the other patients in the sanitarium even though they deal with disability and illness they certainly try to live life to the fullest they like I said they have parties some of them are not encased in casts some of them maybe are on crutches or in wheelchairs um, they have parties they crack jokes they recite poetry Emmanuel falls in love with a young woman named Solange uh, Solange is a bit disabled she has like a cast on her leg but she's still pretty mobile and able to move and stuff and um, Emmanuel and her do have sex um, you know he takes a chance a few times with moving his body in order to have sex and sometimes that doesn't go so well and sometimes that can be really painful but that is I guess you could say a chance that he's willing to take in order to experience some kind of sexual hedonistic pleasure in his life which he certainly deserves to have I think um, so this film doesn't pity the patients it doesn't um, 
it doesn't represent them or portray them as victims or as not that there's anything wrong with seeing yourself as a victim necessarily but we can sometimes have this view of disabled people and uh, this view of like pitying them or feeling bad for them or like using disability narratives to make ourselves feel better you know um sometimes they can be used in that way like oh look what this disabled person's going through you should be grateful for what you have um so there can be this pity that is involved and that can be i think kind of reductive and can kind of make disabled people or seem really one-dimensional it can really reduce them to just their disability and just their body and obviously we're all more than that you know and emmanuel is certainly the same he's much more than just his cast or just his body even though so much of his life is defined by it so what i also loved about this film was um there's great pain there's great torment in this film of watching Emmanuel be bedridden of watching him go through pain and operations and being in his cast but then there's these really great moments of life and and connection and sexuality and joy and you see the patients just trying to make the best of their situation and um in a way it reminded me also of Jean Dominique Bobby. I did um I did an episode a few weeks ago about well, I don't know, maybe more of a few months ago. Um I did an episode about Jean Dominique Bobby and the the memoir that he wrote, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, and there was a documentary also made about Bobby. And he had locked in syndrome and he wrote his memoir through blinking one of his eyes. And he was, you know, he was locked in his body and he really had no way out. And yet he, he lived as much as he could through that limitation and what had happened to his body. And I think you see with Emmanuel, he's grasping for life and he's trying to live as much as he can, even though he's on the precipice of death even though patients at the hospital die often and that he knows that he himself is close to death, that he could die just like Blecker died. You know, Blecker was 28 years old. Um, he was very, very young. So I, I appreciated that about the film of, of life and death coexisting. Um, of him trying to find moments of joy but of course those moments don't cancel out the loneliness and the torment of of his condition and um a really powerful aspect of the film is that throughout the film we see quotes from scarred hearts i think i think it's from the novel scarred hearts so we see blecker's words flashing on the screen we get these little like quotes um that come up and they're very powerful. I, you know, I wish I had them written down or something. It made me really want to read the book and to read what Blecker had to say about illness, about living in a body that is gradually disintegrating and that is really immobile and will not work the way that he wants it to work. And so you have that too throughout the film. So this film is not necessarily linear or chronological in any way. It's more of like a series of vignettes, a series of scenes that are separated 
by these quotes that Blecker wrote. Overall, this film left me with a profound sense of our own vulnerability. And the same way with Heal the Living, this sense that the body is very vulnerable and precarious and that our bodies can stop working. They can stop operating the way that we need them to and that any of us could be stricken with an illness that has no cure or that has very limited uh, ways to manage it or to live with it. You know, one minute you can be healthy and then the next minute you're not. And that those two states, the line between them is just so thin and so fragile. And ultimately, both of these films, I think, they're not just about illness, not just about the body, not just about life and death, um, but they really are about our own mortality and our own vulnerability as human beings and and what it means to to be in a body and how what happens when something goes wrong with that body. And how do you cope with that? And how do you live with that? And whether it's with Claire in Heal the Living, where we see her life with a heart condition, or whether it's with Blecker, who is bedridden and in this cast, um, the body is fragile. The body, and it's also strong in some ways. The body wants to live. You know, it wants to fight. It wants, it does its best, you know. But sometimes we come up against things that we can't protect ourselves from and that we can't change. And so both of these films are just about the profound vulnerability of our bodies and our health. And um, I think that's really important. You know, I think I think so much, especially here in the United States, we are obsessed with health and obsessed with being healthy and with fitness and as I said before, we see illness as a moral failing, or we see ill health, bad health, cancer, you know, all kinds of things as a moral failing. We use language like, you know, he or she lost the battle with their cancer or with their condition. And it perpetuates this idea that we have full 100% control over our bodies and over our health. And I would argue that we don't. We really don't. And can you do things to try and limit your risks? Yes. Yes, you can try to eat healthy. You can stop smoking. You cannot drink a lot of alcohol and so on. But there are people who do everything right and get sick. And then there's people who do everything wrong, you know, in quotation marks here. Because I just don't like, a tr I don't like attaching moral morality to health i don't like it and i will not do it and um and so those people can do everything that you view as wrong and they never get sick you know but we have to get away from this idea that illness is about morality um i recently watched a documentary that was about the aids epidemic in the 1980s and it's called Memories of a Penitent Heart. And it was about this man who died of AIDS and how his mother had a lot of, was very religious and had issues with him being gay and wanted him to repent his homosexuality. 
And the, the documentary reminded me of how the AIDS epidemic is one example in which health gets attached to morality and to moral character. That the reason a lot of people did not care, not just because of their homophobia, which was obviously the central issue, and this is also connected to their homophobia, was this idea that this was a punishment from God. That they got AIDS because they were immoral and they were bad people. And it fueled the stigma around AIDS, and it probably still does fuel the stigma. It fueled the lack of response by the United States government that let thousands upon thousands of people die from this disease. I mean, this wiped out a generation. This wiped out so many people. It was just horrific, and we don't talk about it enough. We do not talk enough about the AIDS crisis and what happened in the 1980s and 90s and how all these people are gone. Um, but that's why I'm a strong believer in not attaching moral value on our health because health is so precarious and so fragile and it can change on a dime and at any moment. And that's what these films are about. These films are about how uncontrollable things can be. And Simon wasn't wearing a seatbelt. And so perhaps if he had been wearing a seatbelt and healed the living, he would not have gotten, his, his injuries would not have killed him. So there are certain things we do to try to mitigate our risks. But sometimes even that's not enough. You know, and sometimes things go wrong and the body goes wrong. And how do you deal with that? And how do you, how do we confront being mortal? How do we confront our own vulnerability? How do we confront ill health or the body betraying us? These are very difficult questions and very difficult issues, but they're ones that I'm left with after watching these two films. Not to mention these are just very well directed, well written powerful films with with beautiful cinematography and they tell they tell these stories and i th i think in a very important nuanced multi-dimensional complex artistic way so if you get a chance to see hill the living if you get a chance to see scarred hearts i would recommend them and as you're watching them think about these questions Bring your own questions to it and your own connections and your own personal issues to the watching of these films if you want to see them or, or ever do see them. That is all I have to say. I have gone on a really long time. So I really appreciate you listening and until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.